Well, this morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Romans. When, it, when we do that, though, and, and each week, I don't know if I'll say this every week, but just keep this in mind. This is just a repeated comment. When you study a book as large as the book of Romans, we want to keep the forest in mind and, and, and not get too lost in the trees, if you know what I mean. So we want to kind of keep this big picture context in mind. But at the same time, when there's a cool tree, let's look at it. You know what I mean? And so sometimes like last week, you know, Paul's really just introducing the book, but there are some cool trees in the first seven verses, weren't there? In fact, we, we looked last week as he kind of introduced, he got distracted by the mention of the gospel and he broke off into verses two uh, through four and, and talked about this man, this God man, this special, unique man, the son of God, the only son of God, Jesus Christ, who was, who was born but as a son was also given, as we read about in the prophecies in the Old Testament. And not only that, but that God accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. And how do we know that? Because he rose him from the dead. There's nobody else that can say that. Nobody else has been raised from the dead who didn't die again. We see some examples of people in scriptures who were raised from the dead, Lazarus. But he died again. Jesus rose again and he lives forevermore. And that's the message that we celebrate here in the book of Romans, the gospel. And as we get into this next section, in terms of the forest, here's the forest. Paul is about to tell them why he's writing the letter. Paul is about to tell them that, number one, he cares for them, and he has been trying to get to see them face-to-face for some time, and he's been hindered. That's the forest, okay? That's the section we're about to look at this morning. But we're also going to take a couple minutes to look at some trees along the way, because like Paul does, is he... He gives kind of the reason he, I wouldn't say he gets distracted, but I would say he, he thinks about something and there's just nuggets along the way as we go through this book. And so we want to do that as we move. And so in verse eight, if you'll join me in Romans chapter one in verse eight, he says this first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And so we see this, this idea that their faith has been spoken of throughout the whole world. Um, and we have this, this thing that Paul jumps into, and he is going to use this continual tense verb multiply. And, and the idea is, is he's wanting the Roman believers to know that they are continually on his mind. He continually is giving thanks for them. Why is he giving thanks to God for the Roman believers? Well, apparently the Christians in Rome and their lives were big news within the empire. As you could take a, a capital city and you start to see this, this group of people doing things differently, worshiping differently, talking about different things, the, the way that they maybe even some of them had removed themselves from some of the paganistic traditions that even involved uh, and were encompassed in the workplace where they had to be part of different trade guilds just to get business. You know, imagine if you, just to be a part of the Coweta County Commerce or Chamber of Commerce or the Noonan City Chamber of Commerce, you had to renounce Christ and, and, and say that you were polytheistic and you worshiped many gods just to get business or to network. And that's what some of these Roman Christians faced. And yet something was going on in the lives of these believers, something uh, big and miraculous. And as the trade routes of of that day went through Rome. You've heard that phrase, all, Rome's, uh, all roads lead through Rome or lead to Rome. And that's exactly how it worked. And as people were coming through, people were talking about these Roman Christians. Lives were being changed. Lives were being altered. Um, you know, we see the same thing 
with the Thessalonian church in Macedonia where Paul was only there three weeks. He also was trying to get back to them, but was hindered. And yet they were along a trade route and everybody was talking about this little church in Thessalonica, just gossiping, if you will, about them. Did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear about this group of people? Do you know what they believe? Do you know what they talk about? And just talking about them, these unbelievers. And you know, as a result of this, Paul had been hearing about this church, hearing about this church. He says, I want to go meet these people. I want to, I want to interact with these people. And you know, I believe that Paul was looking for fat people. Not that kind of fat, that kind of fat acronym. And what do I mean by that? Well, he was looking for faithful people. We see his mindset in 2 Timothy 2.2 2 was that in order to disciple people, you're looking for faithful people that you can teach who can then in turn teach other people. He's looking for available people and he's looking for teachable people. And I think in the Roman believers, he found a bunch of fat people, a bunch of faithful, available, teachable people. And may we be fat in that way as well. May we focus our lives on being this very acronym, faithful, available, teachable, you know, versus the contrast, which is the old triple U syndrome, which is unfaithful, unavailable and unteachable. And yet many times that's what we find in our day. And so Paul finds this group of faithful, available, teachable believers, and he has been longing to get to be with them, to add to their faith. And that's what we see here Uh, In verse 8 is that Paul is thankful because they are an example worldwide uh, to people all over the place. And so we find that in verse 8. Now, this is one of those um, sections really quick that Paul deviates. We're going to look at a tree. Okay, he's going to kind of get away from his big picture, which is, hey, I want to come see you. And here's why. This is what I'm praying for. I want to come see you. But he's going to say this, and we, we don't want to pass by it too quickly in verse 9. He's going to say, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. And let's just kind of stop there for a second, because we have some richness here just in this phrase. And so he says that, that he could call God to the witness stand. Um, based on what he's about to tell the Roman believers in terms of uh, the fact that they're on his mind. He's not just blowing smoke. He's not just telling them that, you're, that he's praying for them. You know, you ever been around somebody that, that there's just a, a hint of insincerity when they say, yeah, I'll pray for you this week. And then it seems like the next time you see them, they've forgotten all about what you've asked them to pray for. There's just a hint of insincerity. So Paul is saying, hey, I'm not being that way with you. I'm, I'm serious. In fact, if I could call God to the witness stand to get into my thoughts, to get into my heart, you guys, you Roman believers are on my mind and on my heart. And I want you to know if God were to take the witness stand, he would say the same thing about that. And then we see, uh, and this is why we're breaking out here, uh, because this is an interesting thought. The word serve that he uses here in verse nine, for God is my witness He breaks off into this phrase, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. It's an interesting word because there's lots of different words you can use in the Greek language for serve. He picks this one and it's, it's to serve in a religious sense. Specifically, it was used of old Testament priests. I serve as a priest. You could literally translate this. And so it's really interesting that Paul takes this word serve and he ties it directly to worship. In fact, you'll see this word 
um, translated other places in the New Testament as worship. Serve and worship almost being equal or interchangeable in some sense. Now, uh, it's interesting because I believe that the two are intertwined in the mind of God or interchangeable. And yet, many times we think of it differently, don't we? we in fact, we take a lot of the... Um, in fact, let's just be honest. Service gets a, a very bad rap sometimes as being mundane, worthless. Well, you know, I'm not John. I don't get up and teach the Bible every week. I just, you know, move the chairs or, or I just flip the button on the soundboard or I just, you know, whatever. I just print the bulletins, right? I just hand out the bulletins. And, you know, God doesn't view that as a distinction. Do you know that anywhere you are and in any service that you provide to the Lord, it can be an act of worship. See, that's how God views the situation. We just view it. Oh, I can't do anything. All I can do is pray. Really? Wow, man. And God views that as an act of worship, just like he does somebody that comes up and plays the piano, just like he does someone who comes up and sings, just like he does a missionary that travels to Timbuktu or Madagascar or any country that's far, far away and, you know, in other galaxies, as Star Wars says. And we view that as service. And we view that as worship. But moving the chairs, printing the bulletins, moving, you know, lighting the candle, whatever. We don't view that as worship. And yet, it's interesting to note that that word is synonymous with worship. God doesn't make the distinction. So you mean I can worship while I'm washing dishes? Yeah. Amen. Yeah, that's right. Changing diapers, right? Some of, some of us with little kids. Of course, we're hopefully getting out of that stage soon. But, uh, you know, there's an opportunity to worship in whatever you find. And some people don't, we don't think that way naturally. We think, well, I got to go to work for 40 hours. I'll worship God when I get home. Or worship God in my devotion in the morning. That's one of the reasons, like, I don't like a real big emphasis on morning devotions because it perpetuates this distinction that that's our worship time and the rest of the day is not. See, we live hopefully in a in perpetual state of worship. This is what I believe. There's a subtle nuance to what Paul is saying is I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son. You know where Paul is getting ready to go after he writes this letter, after he winters in Corinth? He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem, a long trip to deliver money. That's an act of worship. He wasn't preaching the gospel necessarily. He was going to deliver money to the poor saints, and that would be an act of worship. And it all kind of goes back to last week as we looked. It's this obedience that springs from faith. Are you walking by means of the Spirit of God? You can worship God while you're washing dishes then. And then he goes on and, and we kind of get back to our main point. That was kind of a, a sidetrack there. But in verse nine, he says that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. And he basically says this. In fact, if you look at Paul's epistles, his prayer list was long. Has anyone ever just gone through his epistles and wrote down what Paul said he was praying for? I meant to do that this week and I ran out of time. It's an interesting prayer list because almost in every epistle he writes, he's like, I'm praying for you. I'm always praying for you is the idea. And we got to understand that Paul put much value in prayer for these believers. And, you know, it's one of those things. And I, I don't know if you have found this over time 
as well. But if it's one area that's very symptomatic and very consistent among Christians of area that they're lacking or they wish they were better in or more consistent in, it's this area. It's prayer. And and Paul seems to have a high value in prayer. In fact, you know, Paul could never say that without ceasing, I preach the gospel because he wasn't always preaching the gospel. But you know that he said this a number of times that without ceasing, I'm praying for you. Without ceasing, you are in my mind and in my heart, and I'm constantly praying for you. In fact, as Paul works through, you know, there's a list in 2 Corinthians 11, real interesting list there in 2 Corinthians 11. If you want to write down a verse that I'm going to, it's 2 Corinthians 11:28. But before he gets to 28, he talks about all the struggles and all the trials that he goes through in ministry. And he's, he says, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times they receive 40 stripes minus one. And he just goes on and on and on. All of these trials and all of these things that just, uh, just basically buffet him in his, in his effort to share the gospel. And then he goes on into verse 28. And he likens this with those things. And he says this. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So this was the church of Jesus Christ was in the heart of the Apostle Paul. This is what he thought about. This is what his mind was set on. So for him to say to the Romans, I'm always praying for you. He's not lying. He's not blowing smoke. And he wants them to know because I think some of them started to wonder, well, we've got a church here. How come Paul's never visited us? He, he must not care for us. And some may have started to wonder, why has Paul not been there? And so we find in Romans 1, he's saying, man, I love you guys. You're on my heart. You're on my mind. I have been wanting to come see you. And I am hoping to come see you. But I just want you to know, even though I'm not with you, I haven't been there before, I'm praying for you. You are on my heart. You are on my mind. And I... We'll continue to pray for you. And so we're going to see as we look further here in this passage that his prayer was really twofold. Number one, and we kind of looked at this already. He thanked God for who they already were. They were, they were fat people. They were faithful, available. They had put their faith in Christ to be saved. And they were presently trusting Christ in their daily life, responding to the word of God. And so he thanked God for who they already were. Uh, who they already were in Christ. And then number two, we're going to see that Paul prayed to God for what they could become, what they could become. But notice specifically what they be, they could become via his physical presence with them. He wanted to be there with them. He wanted to take his, his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles, and he wanted to invest in these believers because he knew he could add something to what they were already doing. And we're going to see that here as we continue to go on, and we're going to go into verse 10 here. Let's read it together. And and this is his request, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. And so he says in verse 10, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. And as we've mentioned before, Paul had never been to this church. This church had been founded without an apostle. And, um, you know, that's just an interesting thought because the church was probably founded 
by believers who had trusted Christ on the day of Pentecost. We read that back in the introduction to the book of Romans, I think back in Acts. It's Acts 2. I can't remember if it's verse 11. Verse 11 sticking out in my mind. But that they were visitors from Rome that had put their faith in Christ, probably taken the gospel back and did something what new believers many times do. They gossiped about Jesus Christ. They just couldn't help themselves. You know, and I tell you, man, we get so caught in our churches and our religion and growing up in the church that we, we've lost, many of us have lost this excitement. And we talked about it last week. There was a man who lived a perfect life, who came from heaven, who died on the cross for our sins so that you and I wouldn't have to pay the penalty. And then God rose him from the dead. Why, why is that not something we can get excited about? Why is that not something that we gossip about and share just, just spilling off our tongues at every moment of every day? Why is it not that way for us sometimes? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> probably because we get distracted by, by things going on in the world. I mean, that's probably the honest answer. But somewhere along the line, these believers in Acts 2 took this message back to Rome. And they just started sharing it. And people started getting saved. And people started growing in the Lord. And before long, they had a church developing there and growing and being edified and built up. And people started noticing. And Paul wants to get there. And so we see that that's really his his um, his plan. But notice this phrase, um, because it's really interesting there in verse 10, because he says this, making request, if by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. See, Paul is basically making a statement. He's going to tell us a little bit more. He has realized up to this point that his desire to go see them was not in God's will. That's interesting, isn't it? So here's a church. They love the word of God. They're responding to it. They're growing in their faith and God won't let the apostle Paul go there. What's up with that? God, why, how could that not be in your will? But Paul recognizes that up to this point of time, it wasn't God's timing yet. And he's going to go on to describe that in a little bit more detail. We're also going to see that God's will was to get Paul to Rome. It just wasn't in Paul's timing. And it wasn't in the way Paul thought he was going to get there. God got him there. And that wasn't God's will. But up to this point in time, the timing was not accurate. And so we're going to look also at verse 13a because it really describes the same concept we see in verse 10. So going a little bit out of order. I'm sorry for those that like to go in order. But uh, in terms of thought, this is in order. And so verse 13a, now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. And so Paul is going to go into a little bit more detail as to why he hasn't come yet. And we see there that he was, he's been hindered. We see back in verse 10 that it wasn't according to the will of God. So there's some reasons he hasn't come. He wants the Roman believers to know it's not because he doesn't care for him. He's been wanting to be there. There's just been some things that have kept him away from there until now. Um, and I've kind of mentioned this a number of times, but uh, it wasn't that he didn't care for them. It wasn't that he didn't think or, or pray for them. In fact, he, he goes on to say, I want you to know that many times I've planned to come see you. And we don't get um, all of that drawn out for us in the book of Acts. But um, we do see that um, he had planned to come to them many times. In other words, they were in his heart and mind. I mean, why wouldn't it be? You know, in terms of just natural human thinking, here's the empire of the known world. 
Here's the capital city. You know, we think, man, I, if I can just get to the capital city and reach people there, I can make um, an impact. You know, it's interesting. That's kind of the way um, I think we would naturally think. But Paul had been hearing about them. He wanted to get there. And so he's explaining to them. Uh, it wasn't because he didn't want to be there. It's because there were some things that were getting in his way. And so we look at this idea of being hindered. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting word here. And I, we're going to do a, a real quick word study because I think it's very important. Um, this word hindered, um, and we'll bring, it, we'll bring up the, the Greek word later, um, was kuluo. And it just means simply to be prevented or restrained. What I have represented there is not the word we find in our verse. I'm going to show you another word where it's also translated hinder. That's, that's more, that's not restraining and hindering. That's, you know, being a jerk, basically, <laughs> tripping, trying to hurt somebody. Okay. And that's not what we're talking about here in, in Romans one, but I will, uh, we will just talk about the other word that's sometimes translated hinder. So who was hindering him? That's a question. Um, I think a lot of people naturally will say, well, Satan was, Satan was hindering him. I, I actually believe that is looking, looking at the text. I believe it was both God and Satan. Okay. So let's, let's look at this, this concept here. Um, first with Satan hindering him, um, in first Thessalonians two eighteen, we, we find this, uh, this verse. Therefore, Paul speaking to the Thessalonians, uh, it says, therefore we want to come to you. Even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Okay, we see the same English word hindered, but it's actually a different Greek word than what we have here in Romans 1. Um, the word used here in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 is agapto, and it means to cut down or to strike. That's representative of the, of the picture I showed you with the guy tripping the person. Um, and it's a different word than the one used in our verse in Romans 1.13. Satan's hindering seems to come with harm, with pain, desired destruction. You know, why didn't Paul finish his ministry in Lystra? Well, because I believe Satan hindered him. And he hindered him through being stoned. Not medically or by the use of medical marijuana. Stoned with rocks. Yeah, certainly hindered him. And this is what I believe when we look at Satan hindering people... It usually comes with harm, pain, physical destruction, some kind of um, attack, if you will. There's a, a hindering in that way. And ironically, ironically enough, Paul uses this same word, egg-gopto, the same that's egg-copto that's used in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, later in Romans 15.22, to describe his being hindered from seeing the Romans. And so I think Satan played a part in hindering Paul. In fact, we had read through 2 Corinthians 11. All the things that he dealt with in terms of physical harm that hindered his ministry. I believe Satan was at the heart of that. But we also see um, in our verse, in the word that's used here, this, this use of um, the Greek word koluo means to be prevented or restrained. Okay, to be prevented or restrained. And I kind of view it as... As this, I think this is a good visual image. You know, if that's the Apostle Paul walking with the Lord Jesus, it's, it's Jesus leading him by the hand and, and maybe preventing him from that. He's probably getting ready to pick up a scorpion there or something. So he's, he's preventing him. He's moving him away from that. And that's kind of the idea. And so where do we see this? Well, I think this happened um, in the way that God led him to other places. 
He stayed in other places. You know, he, he was going to Ephesus, I think, with the idea of, of sharing the gospel and then, um, you know, planning a church and then moving on. And yet he ends up staying in Ephesus for two years because there was an open door. And he, while he was there, he taught at the school of Tyrannus and all of Asia heard the word of God. And we see his track down through Macedonia where God was leading him from city to city. He had the opportunity to preach in Athens. He had, the, he had three weeks there in Thessalonica after he had some time in Philippi. And so God was, was hindering him, if you will, from getting to Rome by leading him to these different places. And then we find that in Corinth, he actually stayed there a month and a half. How else, God, how else would God hinder him? Well, I think God was using other believers to build and establish the believers in Rome. You know, it didn't have to be Paul every time. You know, that's, that's one of the things that um, I just despise about the modern church is it doesn't have to be the pastor all the time. It doesn't have to be the pastor emeritus all the time. It doesn't have to be an elder all the time. We're all called to the ministry. In fact, what does Ephesians 4.11 said? It said that we're taught to be equipped so that the saints might do the work of the ministry. And, and really the job of the leadership is to empower you to serve the Lord in your context in your sphere of influence. And that's really what the church is about. And so God just gives us a beautiful visual aid. Here's this thriving church, never been founded by an apostle, never been visited by Paul, and yet they can still make it. Go figure the word of God and the Holy Spirit and they can make it. Wow. Wow. Why does that shock us? And yet God probably gave this in some, I'm sure there was other reasons, but maybe this is one reason, a visual aid that God can accomplish his work with or without fill in the blank. You know, big, some big hotshot superstar that's on the radio that has a 30,000 person church. God can, can march it on and he does it through the lives of you individually and me individually. And so I think he gives us a great example of that. And then I think that God's version of success and strategic planning is not always our version of success and strategic planning. As I mentioned before, if, if we're thinking humanly, the human way is like we're going to the capital city. We're going to get there because we're going to get the most bang for our buck. We're going to reach people and then we're going to branch out of there. That's where all the money is. We can kind of fund our ministry. We can, and, and that's how humans think. And God sent Paul to places like Philippi and Ephesus and Thessalonica. And he had not had a chance to get to the big dog city of the day. Uh, He was all over everywhere else, but he hadn't been there yet. And so I think in that way, God was hindering Paul from getting to Rome. And so I think he recognizes that here in verse 13. Okay, hang with me there. We're going to go backwards now to verse 11. Okay, backwards to verse 11. And we're going to see that Paul says that he has got a very strong desire. Verse 11, he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. And so Paul, uh, again, he's really just going out of his way to make sure the Romans know that he wants to come see them. He's been wanting to be there. In fact, we know that even with the word that he uses for long, because it, the word itself means to desire earnestly. And then in the Greek, he slaps on an emphatic preposition on the front of the word to make its emphasis even stronger. It would be like, man, I, you, you could say, I, I, I want to come see you really badly. 
Or you can say, I really, really want to come see you really badly. That's kind of what he's saying here. He's making this emphasis stronger. And he's going to say, really give two main reasons. We're going to find one reason there in verse 11. We're going to find the second reason at the end of verse 13. Um, and we kind of get a key off of the language when he, when he uses uh, this, this phrase that means in order that. But the first reason is simply this. That I may impart to you some spiritual gift is what he says there in verse 11. That, may I, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. And, you know, he uses this word some. And I don't believe he's talking about the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives when somebody believes. That's a spiritual gift given by the Holy Spirit. We're talking about something that Paul could impart. So what is he talking about here? Well, I think that um, there's a real clear use of it. And I believe he's probably talking about the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Because he uses the same word in part. What does it mean? Well, um, let's go to 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Let's just read it. This is what I believe that Paul wants to impart to the Roman believers. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 He says this, and and you see again, he was longing for this church as well. Verse 8, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. And so as we look at what Paul is talking about, I believe he's trying to, he wants to impart the gospel in its full sense. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the three tenses of our one salvation, this full and complete deliverance that God has provided for us. But he also wanted to impart his very life. And you do that face to face, generally. They didn't have the phone back then. They didn't have FaceTime, right? So this was a face to face meeting that he could impart not only the gospel, what he taught, but also his very life. To these believers. And that's what I believe that he's longing to do. And this uh, really kind of goes with the idea of fellowship, being a part of their daily life, interacting with them on a face to face basis. And let's go back to Romans one. And he says he wants to impart some or a unique, a certain spiritual gift. Um, and I think he, again, he's talking about the gospel, his teaching and his life. Um, but then he also says this, there's a reason he wants to do this. Go back to verse 11 and see if we can pick that up for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift and notice that next phrase so that you may be established. I want to be there. I've got something to add to your life through my life and through my teaching. And the reason for that is so that you can be firmly established or to fix firmly is really what the word means. And so the main reason that Paul wanted to impart this, uh, impart this spiritual gift um, was that the Roman believers would be established. And this word just means to stand, to set fast, or to fix firmly. The idea would even be to, to hold up, if you will. You know, and, and as believers, do we ever face storms in our life where maybe it's easy to get blown over? It, we all need establishing. This is one of the beautiful things about the book of Romans is it's the, it's, the book, in a sense, if you want to go from start to finish, be established in, in our faith, to be set up, to be fixed firmly, to be held up, this is the book to do it. This is the study to embark on because of the way Paul systematically lays this out. But here he's specifically talking about 
being there in fellowship with them, being there in person with them. There's a value in being with other believers. In our day and age, how easy is it just to stay home, stay in our slippers, stay in our robe and flip on the Internet and catch a sermon? I mean, is it is it not easy to do that? I mean, all you got to do is Google sermon. You probably got I don't know what would come up. I don't know. A million hits. You could get anything you want to from the comforts of your own bed. And yet God values fellowship. God values in-person relational interaction. We're going to see Paul even develop this as we go further in verse 12, because I believe he talks about how we are established. Look at verse 12. That is, again, describing how we may be established, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. And so in this case, how is one established? How do we establish people? Well, Paul's emphasis here is on fellowship. Now, why would that be important? Well, because when we establish people, hopefully we're establishing them in the word of God, in sound doctrine, in understanding of who their God is, what he's done for them. Because if we have a concept of uh, and a solid understanding of the gospel that you don't deserve heaven, you deserve hell, if we are being honest with one another, that our sins have separated us from God and yet God has gone out of his way to, to take care of that issue for you. Not only the, sin, the penalty of sin, which is death, but also this lack of righteousness that we have and we cannot overcome. And God takes care of both of those issues in the gospel. That if we simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be saved from the penalty of sin. And if, and if that is something we need to know to be established, because everything builds from there. Colossians 2, 6, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, how'd you receive him? Well, I put my faith in the finished work of Christ. So walk in him. Colossians 2, 6 goes on to say, so the same way I got saved from the penalty of sin is the same way that I get saved daily from the power of sin. And I will be saved in the future from the very presence of sin. It's by faith in a finished work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And so this is one of the things that has to be essential in being established. And so Paul's personal fellowship, Paul's idea of being there, these are the types of things I believe he would emphasize with these believers. And so he's looking to firm them up, fix them up, prop them up, so that when the storms of life come, they can stand. They can stand on the word of God, depending upon the Holy Spirit, trusting in the promises of God. And these are all things that I think are uh, necessary to be established. In fact, we see later, just a couple verses later in verse 17, Paul says that the just shall live by faith. Now, in order to be just, you've got to transfer your faith from whatever you're trusting in. If that's your good works, if that's your church attendance, or if that's your intention to be good from here on out, you need to quit trusting in those things. That's that will send you straighter to hell. In fact, people slide all the time off of a church pew straight into hell when they pass away because they've never put their faith in the one who died for them and rose again. See, that's what the gospel is. That's the good news is that Jesus came to pay the penalty. And so before we can even talk about walking by faith, we need to talk and, and you need to be exhorted 
to put your faith in the finished work of Christ who died for you and rose again. And so when Paul says later, the just shall live by faith, he's talking about somebody that's already been justified, somebody that's already been declared righteous by God when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. And those types of people, those just people, shall now live by faith and shall now walk by faith. And what we're going to see is that as Paul wants to get together with them, notice where his focus is. Go back with me to verse 12. As it relates to establishing, he says, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. See, this is why we get together as believers. It's not to go to heaven. We don't come to church to go to heaven. We put our faith in Christ to go to heaven. We come to church because now we want to walk and live by faith. And as I am walking by faith, Pat's going to benefit from that. And as Pat's walking by faith, I'm going to benefit from that. And, we're just, and just go around the room as you're interacting and rubbing shoulders with people. As they're learning to walk and trust the Lord, we're all going to benefit from that. We're going to be built up and we're going to be established because we're going to be reminded of truth. We're going to be reminded about how great our God is. We're going to be reminded about the great salvation that he's provided. And yet... Every Sunday, we can be building up our faith just by rubbing shoulders with other believers. This is what Paul wants here. This is why he wants to be there in person. It's not that so he can go put his stamp on them and start claiming success for the Roman church and their ability to reach others. He wants to benefit from them and he wants them to benefit with what he's got to offer them. And so there's this mutual benefit we see here in verse 12. His second reason, uh, we see at the end of verse 13. So he was longing to see them so he might impart to them some spiritual gift to be established. The second reason we find here at the end of verse 13. um, And we'll read the whole verse, but we're going to focus on the last part. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. And so we see Paul wants to bear fruit among them. Uh, He knew that the ministry that was given to him by God would benefit the Roman believers. And this wasn't an arrogance thing. God had told him, you're the apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul wanted to take what he had been gifted to do in his calling and and go invest in the lives of the Roman believers so they would grow and they would continue to bear fruit. He had more to teach them. And I think one of the reasons Paul wanted to be there is they were hungry for truth. This was a group of believers that was fat, faithful, faithful available, teachable. And when you find people like that in your life, believers who are fat, drop everything and be with them. Drop everything and invest in them. You know, so we talk all this time about, well, investment. I, I, of course, I um, you know, really cut my teeth in the secular business world. So investment was always the, the big word. And I'm about investing. I mean, God, God talks about investing. And so I'm not necessarily downing any kind of secular investment. I'm just saying this. If you want an investment that's going to go with you, it's people. It's people. It's other people. If you find a fat person, drop everything and invest in them. You find someone that's faithful, available, teachable, and you've got something to offer them, drop everything and invest in that person. See, that's the type of people we take with them. Dads and moms, start with your kids. 
Yeah, you, and I know what you're saying. Oh, I don't know if I got faithful kids. <laughs> some of them are growing, aren't they? Some of them are immature. They need to grow into that. But that's where your investment starts. Invest in them. But if you find someone in your life, I don't care if it's a cashier at Walmart. I don't care if it's a coworker. I don't care if it's somebody you just met. If you sense that you've got a fat person, drop everything and invest. That's an investment that will pay dividends. And that's another reason I believe Paul wants to get to Rome. He's got a a group full of fat people ready to roll. And so he wants to be there to invest in their lives because he knows that they'll go on and invest in others. Paul views his ministry as, as an indebtedness, as a debt. Look at verse 14. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. Paul was a continual, and he uses this, this phrase in the present tense, he's a continual debtor. He's continually in a position of indebtedness to the Gentiles. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't care about the Jews. How do we know that? Well, every town he goes to, he starts in the synagogues. So it's not like he's just discounting a certain group of people. You know, I... I appreciate the way God has created the body of Christ and with differences. But one of the things that just drives me crazy is when people get so specialized in their ministry. Oh, well, I, you know, and we had a, I had a good conversation with Teresa. So this isn't really about what we talked about. It just kind of reminded me, but I've known people who, who have come out of a a really difficult background, maybe tattoos all over them. And then all they focus on are, are other tattooed people. And then I've met people that come out of, uh, a, a, another kind of background, uh, maybe a legalistic background, and all they focus on is legalistic people. Or they come out of a background where they've been addicted to substance abuse and all they focus on is substance abuse people. Now, that might be a primary emphasis of one's ministry. I'm not saying that. But to bypass other people that need it, you know, to look at somebody for whatever reason and say, oh, they don't meet my specialized niched area of ministry. I'm not going to talk to them. You know, that's not what Paul's saying here. He's just saying, hey, my primary calling is to one of the Gentiles. But guess what? Along the way, I'm going to some synagogues. I'm, I'm going to talk to my Jewish brethren because we're going to find out later in Romans if Paul could give up his own salvation and his countrymen could be saved, he'd do it. And he kind of says the same thing. God is my witness. I'm not just blowing smoke. This is how much I love my people. And so he's not, he's not saying, oh, I'm just, now I just focus on the Gentiles and not the Jews. He's just saying, this is, his, this is his calling. This is what God has called him to. And there's this continual indebtedness. You know, I understand retirement in our culture. I understand retiring from, our, from a, a secular job, a secular work. I've never understood retirement from ministry for this very reason. Because there's an indebtedness. You know, I, I had a friend and he was just, he had a great way of putting things, but he used to always say about evangelism, you know, I'm just one beggar telling another, another beggar where I found bread. You've probably heard that phrase before, you know, but imagine a, a beggar who's, who's found a place that that's got unlimited bread. And for 30 or 40 years, he spent his life telling other people where you can find bread. And then one day he just says, ah, I'm done telling people where they can find bread and just sits down for the next 20 years. And so there's this mindset here that, that Paul is a continual position of indebtedness. There's not a retirement from ministry. (laughs) There may be a retirement from secular work and man, praise the Lord. If you're able to do that, but I'm talking about ministry. This is an indebtedness. We've got a message that can change 
people's eternal destinies. How could we retire from that? That's good news. Don't you love sharing good news? And then he says this in verse 15, and we'll, we'll close here this morning. He says, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And so in verse 15, he, he says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. That ought to strike you as, as a little funny. Not that he's ready to preach the gospel, but that he's ready to preach the gospel to a group of Christians. Does it strike you odd? Preach the gospel. I, I thought his audience was already Christians. Why would he want to preach the gospel to a bunch of Christians? Hmm, good question, huh? <laughs> but he, he clearly says that. And he says he's, he's ready. I love that. There's this readiness on my part. The word kind of has this idea like, uh, you know, let me at him. Let me at him. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I've got this readiness about me to go preach the gospel. Why would he say that he needed to preach the gospel. Well, you know that Christians don't remember everything. Did you know that? <laughs> there's, a, there's a ministry in the Bible that talks about just simply reminding you and I of what we already know because we tend to forget. We tend to lose perspective. We tend to lose sight of what's important. They needed to be reminded of the gospel over and over and over again, and so do you. You need to be reminded that you've got a Savior who died for your sins and rose again. That's the gospel. We need to be reminded of that, that God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We need to hear that message. We need to know that we got a God that loves us that much. What a great time of year also to remember that as we celebrate the coming of our long-awaited Messiah, the one who would take care of the sin penalty for us and provide a righteousness that we could not obtain on our own. You know the other reason? And um, there are so many voices out there in our day that we listen to throughout the given week, whether that's a Bible teacher on the radio, whether that's a, a book that we're reading. And you know what? Many are not, many that we listen to are not clear on the gospel. And we need to be careful and we need to guard this message because what ends up happening is anytime you introduce you or me into the equation, we turn it into a works gospel and we take the focus off of Jesus Christ. Take the focus right off of them. And then it becomes about what we did and how we did it and what we're going to do. And the Bible wants to keep the focus on the man who died for your sins and rose again. The Bible wants to keep your focus there. God wants to keep your mindset occupied with Jesus Christ because it's not just a set of doctrines and writings. We're talking about a person, a person who wants a relationship with you. And so, so many times it, we think, and I've heard this before, well, don't preach the gospel because we just, we are all Christians already. Give us some deep, meaty truth. You know, the deep, meaty truth that we need is to remain on a solid foundation so that we can actually grow. I mean, I've heard that so, so many times. Well, why do you keep preaching the gospel? Why do you keep preaching the gospel? Because we need to hear it. We need to be reminded of what Jesus did for us every week. We need to be occupied with the Son of God in our daily life. And part of that and foundational to that is understanding what he did for you on the cross 2,000 years ago. 
And so we need to keep that in mind. And I believe that's Paul's mindset too. I also think based on verse 17, the just shall live by faith. And in, he says in, uh, at the beginning of verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I believe, I believe Paul is talking not only about the good news for the unbeliever, how to get saved, but good news for the believer on how to live a righteous life pleasing to their father. And I think that's all incorporated here in the good news. The good news for the unbeliever is how he or she can be justified or declared righteous by God, which is based on the finished work of Christ. And I believe the good news for the believer is how, or she, how he or she can be practically sanctified or made righteous by God, which is also based on the finished work of Christ, which is also accessed as we walk by faith. And so this is what I believe Paul is talking about when he says, I'm anxious, I'm ready, let me at him. I want to preach the gospel to you at Rome. I, I don't think he's just talking about salvation from the penalty of sin. I think he's talking about salvation from the power of sin, salvation from the very presence of sin, the whole message, the way God stepped into human history and took salvation and gave you a complete salvation package the moment you put your faith in Christ. And how do you practically as a believer benefit from that as you walk by faith in a moment by moment way in your daily life? Heaven's already settled. The moment you put your faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven. The moment you put your faith in Christ, that's the only message the unbeliever needs to hear. They need to hear the gospel. They need to understand that they can be forgiven of their sins the moment they put their faith in the finished work of Christ. But I think Paul goes on to teach in the gospel how believers, you and I who have put our faith in Christ, can now live without being dominated by sin on a daily basis. How can we be delivered from the power of sin in our daily life? This is why I think Paul is anxious to preach this message to the Romans. And so let's close there this morning. We'll pick back up in verse 16 next week. Lord, thank you for uh, the time in your word uh, this morning. We're thankful for Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. Uh, and Lord, we're just grateful uh, for the opportunity each week to open your word, to, to dissect it, to look at it a little bit closer. Uh, we pray uh, that you would allow us to um, really just own the truth for ourselves and in our daily lives and that we might learn what it means practically to walk by faith, to walk in dependence upon you, this week. And I pray this in Jesus name. Amen.